going to, well, we're planning on landing a series that we've been doing for the last five or so weeks. It may go on. Um, we have a tendency just to keep tripping into series and thinking, there, yeah, let's keep that going. Uh, God seems to have some more to say. But we are planning on finishing it this week, a series that I've called Sipping Salt Water. Uh, how to find lasting satisfaction in a world of thirst. That actually, I, I, I want to suggest that, that we are almost like boats on an ocean, like the Samuel Taylor Coleridge poem uh, that I remember from my childhood, that uh, this sailor comes back from a long journey and he meets a, a man on the way to a wedding and he says to him, tells him his whole story, his whole journey, and then it gets to a part where the wind dies down and the sun's beating down on them. They long for a drink and he says, water, water everywhere. All the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, not any drop to drink. This concept that they are surrounded by water, but actually it's not that great. That if you're dying of thirst and you drink salt water, that actually it would, it would have a detrimental effect on your health. And I wonder if that's a picture of life. I wonder if that's a metaphor for our world. As Christians, we are like floating on this ocean of any possibility of drink that we could have, that we, we, we feel could impact us and, and, make, and make our lives improved and, and make everything okay. But actually, it's like sipping salt water. And it's to the detriment of our soul. And so in week one, we looked at John 4. This great story, Jesus at the well sat down for a drink and this woman uh, approaches him. We know the woman was collecting water at a really odd time of day. Either she wasn't welcome or didn't want to go when all the other women would collect water. But she sits down and she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew and they didn't get on with each other. And, and Jesus says to her basically uh, in a paraphrase that you, you think you've got a dry bucket but you've got a dry soul. You think that you need more and more water, a better kind of water, but actually you need living water. You're sipping from salt water, running to all of these men to satisfy, but actually what you need is Jesus. And so we started to look at some of the themes that I think are like salt water in our life, that we think if we could just get that sorted in our life, then everything will be okay. And so we looked at the emotions of life. Psalm 42, where actually it says, my soul, why are you downcast within us? That actually we, our soul, which I believe is all that is within us, our soul uh, can, can often lead us to places where we think something about God that his word says is not true. That actually his word says something else, but our emotions say, God, you don't love me. You, you can't be for me, but his word says that he does love us and that he is always with us and never leaves us or forsakes us. But our emotions lead us to a place where we go, oh, he can't be. And that actually we can question our emotions. And sometimes our emotions are screaming out because of something that's going on in our soul. If we were just to listen to our emotions and take them to God, he might want to do some deep work within us. And so on week three, we looked at the pace of life. So we've got the, vol uh, the, the, um, the emotions of life and the pace of life. And for those of you that are here, I ripped my shirt. Do you remember? <laughs> the shirt got ripped. Not purposely. I wasn't. Anyway. Um, and uh, Matthew 11, where Jesus says, walk with me uh, on the message version. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Meet a picture of living life low to the ground. Of actually saying, I'm not God. You are I'm going to put you in your right place and I'm going to understand where my place is in surrendering to you and going at the pace that you have me at. And so then we jumped into Psalm 131 last week, looking at the volume of life. So we had the emotions of life, the pace of life and the volume of life. Does, does life just seem really loud? Just being bombarded? Whether you, whether you think it's like physically loud, I think the, the amount of messages we get, media messages, news, constant news. In fact, while I was writing that sermon, I turned on the news for five minutes and it was the terrorist attack in, um, in New Zealand. And I'm, like, I'm bombarded again by yet more bad news and it just seems to overwhelm us. 
But, G, uh, but David in Psalm 131 says that I've managed to quieten my soul because I'm not living life too proud. I'm not lifting my eyes up too high, living life low to the ground. I'm going to let you be God. And there's some stuff that I don't need to know. And uh, he then gives this beautiful picture that we looked at last week of a weaned child is my soul within me. What a beautiful picture. Not a nursing child, but a weaned child. This child is in the presence of its mother, not wanting anything, just wanting the presence. And I wonder if sometimes our emotions are crying out because our soul just needs to not come with asking, not come with demanding, but just come and rest in the presence of Jesus. And like a weaned child, our soul is within him. So I don't know about you, but my soul needs that. My soul needs to know that God is God, I am not, that I can come to him when things seem like they're going too fast, when the volume is too much, when my emotions are up and down. I know that I can come to a God who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. So I ask you this week again, how's your soul doing? How's your soul doing? How is all that is within you doing? Our soul, it's, I believe it's the, the God-given breath of God that makes us uniquely us. That we are body and we are spirit, our soul, all that is within us, David cries out. And there's a, there's a passage that we've kind of used as our, our starting point each week in 3 John. It's only one chapter, verse 2. It says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. The, the, the Holy Spirit working through John as he writes this says, I know that your mental health, your emotional health, your physical health, it's all connected. What about your soul health? What about taking care of that bit of us that has to connect with God and is interconnected with everything else? So we're going to uh, land this series right back at the start. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis. Easiest book of the Bible to find. Just open the cover and you found it. Genesis chapter 2. And I just want to read just a few verses from chapter 2. as I want to unpack what I believe is uh, an environment in which our soul can flourish. That there's some ingredients in, in, in Eden that God puts there and says, do you know what? I want perfect connection with you. And I, there's some stuff that you can have in your life that I put in that garden that, that will allow your soul to flourish. And as it goes well with your soul, it would go well with all of you, every part of you. And so we're going to explore some of those things in uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 7 down to verse 9. And then we'll jump because he talks about some rivers and things. And we'll jump down to verse 15 uh, and then see where we finish. So verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. That word creature is, is the same root word as the word soul used elsewhere. So it's the breath of God that makes him uniquely him. It's the soul of humanity. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man who he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump down to verse 15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Finish there. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that, that no matter where we are on this journey with you, whether we believe, Jesus, that you are who you say you are and you are the Son of God, or whether we are doubting that this morning, or whether we're skeptical of that this morning, Lord, I thank you that you allow us to come as we are. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, will you just speak into our lives this morning? 
Just do what only you can do, which is meet each one of us right where we're at this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do we have any gardeners in church this morning? Any gardeners? Right? Oh, got a gardener at the back. Raise hands if you're a gardener. Not many gardeners in church. Another gardener, another gardener. <laughs> I am now a gardener, much to the disgust of my childhood self. I say that because as a child, I was dragged around every um, garden centre on a Saturday morning, looking at plants and stuff and just thinking this is the most boring life you could ever possibly imagine. And then it went up a stage and we used to go around National Trust Gardens. And you're just traipsing around a National Trust garden. Your parents are ooing and ahhing at all of the stuff. And you're just like, this is the most boring thing on the planet. I just want to go home and make something out of Lego. And uh, National Trust now is not like that, by the way. We make our kids do it because <laughs> it's like, it's just payback, isn't it? And they'll do it to their kids. And it's just generational stuff. Um, but it's more fun now because they've got like play areas and, and stuff that kids can actually do. And so it's kind of orientated around kids. But I, from that, I think something's rubbed off. And I now have a love for gardening. Didn't think I would, but I do. And we've got a fairly large garden, so it keeps me quite busy. And now it's coming to spring. We can kind of get back in the garden and just recover something of the winter uh, that's done to our garden. And, and um, so Cara and I sat down. And we're like, right, we've, we've got this like kind of paved, blocked off bit at the very bottom of the garden with some raised beds. And we've, got, we've always had plans to do an allotment. And it's always just kind of grown and overgrown. And we've never had a chance to do it. So this year, we're going to just have one of the beds and we're going to grow some stuff. Let's see if we can grow. So we're in the, we've got a little plan and we're like, it's drawing out this, this little bed and we're like, we can grow potatoes and onions and all this kind of stuff. And we're, we're then, I'm reading in allotment books that it says you need to know what type of soil you've got. So I'm like, oh, we need to know what type of soil we've got. The book tells us. And if the book tells us, we should go because we don't know, but the book tells us. So we'll go and get this little soil testing sample thing. So I go to the garden centre. I'm, I'm asking around, have you got one of these little soil sample things? It's 35 quid. I'm like, for testing soil. And she's like, well, that's, that's the one we want to sell you. This is the one you'll probably want to buy for £3.50. So I like, that's fine. I'll buy the £3.50 one, which is this little tube. Um, and uh, basically, it had some lines on it. So I just put some soil in, then put the powder in and, and filled it with water. And what the idea is that you give it a shake and it then tells you by the colour of the water what type of soil you've got. So I'm just shaking it and I'm looking, thinking, well, we've clearly got dirty uh, soil because it's just dirty water. So I go back to the instructions because I'm a man and, I, I, and it says that, um, you different that if you leave it for 10 minutes, the water will settle and it'll turn a different colour. So I'm like, OK, cool, let's leave it for 10 minutes. So I'm there. And I'm the most impatient man in the world. So it's like, oh, it's still brown. So 10 minutes felt like forever. And I go back to it and I'm, I'm so excited because the water has changed colour. It's no longer dirty water. And I'm like, family, gather around. This is a miracle. Look, it's magic. We've got green water. The soil has turned, the water in the soil has turned green. And she's like, that's great. What does it mean? I'm like, I've no idea, but it's turned green. That's all that matters. It's turned green. She's like, well, we need, I don't know what that means. I'm like, no, I don't know what it means. So we have to go back to the packet. And it tells us that the different colour water means that your soil is different type of soil. And if it's red water, it's acidic. And if it's blue water, it's alkaline. And if it's green, it's neutral. So I'm like, we've got neutral soil. Isn't that great? She's like, I've no idea. What does that mean? Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, we're hoping it will because we haven't had time to change it. <laughs> but that's the point is that you, if you want stuff to grow, then your soil has to be a certain type of soil. And so you can add things to your soil to make it more acid or more alkaline because different vegetables need that kind of environment to be able to flourish and grow. I wonder if the soil of our soul needs some stuff put in and some other stuff taken out in order for our soul to flourish. Genesis chapter 2. We have this amazing narrative that speaks into our original home, the home that God creates for humanity. That says this is where we're going to dwell together. So this morning we're going to get really practical and I just want to explore four elements that I've observed in this passage 
there is some ingredients in that garden that I believe allows the soul to flourish. It's an environment, it's the soil of the soul in which our soul can flourish. And the first is this, we get to say yes. We get to say yes. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put a man whom he'd formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And so we know from Genesis chapter one, verse one, that in the beginning, God. Okay, so as Christians, we believe that before anything else was God. And and he is God and he is creator because in the beginning was God and he created. And so we know that in God and through God, all things are held together and have their being. So God is the creator. And he creates everything we see. And we read it in that account of God makes the sun, the moon, the stars, earth, planet, animals. He makes mankind. And he makes this utopia, this Eden for humanity to dwell in. And he calls it perfect. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So here we have God makes this Eden for humanity to flourish and to find satisfaction. And do you know what? I don't think it's nearly as spiritual as we'd like to think it is. We haven't got Hillsong playing a nice little acoustic set in the corner. Or I'm I'm more of a Bethel guy, so I'm just going to come over to the Bethel corner and Bethel are there just tinkling away. And it's like, wow, this is amazing. Or the angels aren't prostate on prostate, prostate. Mate, I always get those confused. The angels aren't prostate on the floor, like face down, glorifying God. That's not what that's not what the picture is of this Eden. This picture is not nearly as spiritual as we might like to think it is. This environment looks great and tastes amazing. Okay, tough crowd. It's there to be enjoyed. That life is this gift that God gives us and says, I want you to enjoy it. I wonder if we were to ask most people in this town what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. I think most of them would come back and say, uh, high morals, high moral standard, um, I know, like miserable, known for what they really disagree with and like hate. Uh, generally people you don't want to be around. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just making some guesstimates, but I think that's probably what most people think are Christians. I doubt whether most of them would think Christians, yeah, they're the ones that really enjoy life. They're the ones that are like flourishing. They're the ones that when they should be miserable, they just have this like joy. I wonder if that's the kind of environment that God creates for humanity to dwell in. An environment where we get to have fun, we get to enjoy life, nature, friends and food. It's an environment where we get to say yes to enjoying and flourishing and finding satisfaction. See, God, he creates nature. He creates all that we see. But then he puts humanity in it and says, now cultivate it and keep it. So, so God makes nature, but he, he puts man in there to bring culture. See, if I leave my garden and don't do anything with it for a number of years, that nature goes crazy. But God says, no, I, I want you to come in and I want you to bring culture to that nature. So culture is not inherently evil. It is a gift of God that he's given to humanity. I want you to bring culture to that nature, shape it, mold it, make it something beautiful. And so we are not against art. We're not against movies. We're not against music, eating, partying, enjoying life. That's why we throw a big party at Easter and we throw a big party at Christmas. Because we enjoy life. In fact, Jesus was known as one 
that, that they thought that the religious leaders thought partied a little bit too much. That he ate with, with sinners and tax collectors and the, the religious are saying, you drunk and you slug it. In fact, what they were actually doing there was manipulating a, a passage from Deuteronomy. I think it's Deuteronomy 21 where it says, if your children go wayward, then they are a drunk and a sluggard because they're not doing what their parents have told them to do. And so the religious leaders are going, well, Jesus is not doing what we've told him to do. He's a drunk and a sluggard. It's funny, isn't it, how the religious are known for what they're against. Jesus was known for what he was for, and he was for life in all its fullness. Do you enjoy God? Do we enjoy what he's created? Do we enjoy what he created us for? There were some theologians back in the 1600s, and uh, they gathered together and studied scripture and asked questions of each other. And their aim was to, uh, to, to bring to the, the people uh, confessions of faith creeds that that would be declared to say this is what we believe and some of them are great some of them are a little bit squiffy uh, and some of them are just wrong uh, but that's just humanity but some of the really good ones they're like we're just we're just asking questions of each other and one that i love that you can impress your friends with because you just say the the shorter westminster catechism just throw that in there and they're like what um but the shorter west i would suggest there's a longer one i haven't read the longer one but the short one has got one section in that i absolutely love where they ask the question what is the chief end of man i mean that's a smelly a smelly a fairly small question isn't it what what's humanity about i mean let's just gather around that question for a couple of hours and their answer to that question is the chief end of man is to glorify god and enjoy him forever I think that goes right back to Eden. That God's heart for humanity is that we would glorify him. How? By enjoying him forever. Because he's a good God. This is the environment that God created for the human soul that we get to say yes. Not yes to excess, but yes to God. And by saying yes to God, we get life. So we get to say yes. And the second observation that I see in this passage is that I think is, is vital to the f- flourishing of our soul is that we get to work. We get to work. You're like, what? Work? That's, all the, that's the stuff that brings stress into my life. I thought we were trying to get rid of stress. But we see from this environment that God created that work was part of that environment. It was instituted before sin came into the picture. So before humanity made that, that mistake of going their own way and wanting to be like God rather than worship God, before that happened, God said, I want you, it says in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. See, work is not the result of sin. Adam wasn't busy doing nothing and just tripped into sin and God was like, well, we better give him some work to do because when he leave him on his own, it really goes wrong. That's not how it happened. See, most people live for not having to work. Because we think that responsibility-free life is a happy life. But I want to tell you that work is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Sin makes work filled with anxiety, toil and fear and misplaced goals. But work as it was created originally is essential to the health of the human soul. But let me just define work for a minute. Because work for many of us is the job that we do. And that job at the end of the week or end of the month gives us a pay packet and we get the, the, the employment uh, and we get to have that as our work. But I want to suggest that Genesis 2 says work and keep it, that the, the concept of that word is actually about cultivating and serving. 
Church, we've been given work that is essential to the health of our soul because it is essential for us to connect with God. A work, a responsibility to cultivate this world, to shape this culture, to show that saying yes to things brings life, not just harm. So how? By serving. By serving. That same word that's used for, for, for work in, in Genesis 2 is the same word that's used throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, primarily for, for um, uh, people serving other gods or priests serving in the temple. So there's this picture of serving that our work is serving. So some of us, we get a job and we get a paycheck and we get the privilege of being paid to work. But the work is not just the job. The work is saying, you know what? I've got a responsibility in this season and this sphere of influence that I have. I get to work by bringing something of the kingdom of God into this place that I am right now. No matter what job you have, no matter whether you are employed to do it, no matter whether you volunteer, no matter whether you're caring, no matter whether you sit on the committee of a town, no matter whether you're a student or a senior, you get to work because we get to take up the responsibility of bringing the culture of the kingdom of God by serving those around us. No matter what job you have, you have work to do. And it is vital to the flourishing of our soul. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10 says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. So whatever you do, we get to see our God-given responsibility and we get to serve with all of our might, bringing life to every person as we volunteer, as we get paid for that, as we serve. And that's when work becomes our joy. If you look to your job for joy, you will be going from job to job to job to job to job. It might be that you're a carer or you look after the kids. If you look to that for your joy, then you might end up going from family to family to family to family. But when we see that actually the responsibility is, I get to steward something of the kingdom of God to those that I'm working alongside. Do you know, I was speaking to somebody this week and uh, they were just telling me the story of when they were in their workplace and um, the, the culture in the workplace had got quite nasty. And uh, people were not for each other. Uh, the business was all about financial goals and people were feeling the pressure. And so uh, he took it upon himself to, uh, it wasn't huge, but he's like, I've got to do something because this place is getting, and he's a Christian, and this place is getting really nasty. And so all he decided to do was smile as he went down the corridors. He's going to walk down the corridor, I'm just going to smile. Because everybody's head was like this and they were just grumpy. And so he's like, I, I don't know what else I can do, I can just smile. And he saw people lift up their heads and they would smile back at him. And for a brief moment, there was something of, of life. There was something of joy. Was it huge? No. Did it change that person's life? I don't know. Did it change that moment? Absolutely. We get to bring something of the kingdom of God when we choose to say, I've got a responsibility, even though I may not enjoy this job or this volunteering just feels like it's dragging me down or, or caring for this person is just like, it's, it's draining me. But we get a responsibility to say, God, use me to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth right now. So we get to say yes. We get to work. And thirdly, not only do we get to say yes, but we also get to say no. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. But in the day of it you shall sure, that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Do you know what's ultimately good for the health of your soul? You get to say no. Can I tell you being able to say no is the gift of God? Because my thought is, well, if you didn't even put that tree in there, God, it would have made things a lot easier. 
Because there's no tree, there's no temptation. It's like, God, why put the tree there in the first place? But actually, we know that love has to have choice. We know that we ha- for, for true love to exist, we have to be able to say no. I mean, we've got a name for it in this culture. If, if we have love without a no, we've got a name for it. It's called abuse. And so love has to have the option of saying no. We've got to be able to say no for true love to exist. So God says, here's all the trees. Every tree in the garden is yours. And it's good to look at. It's great to enjoy for food. You're going to have a blast in this garden. But there's one tree. So I'm like, I think we're on the winning side already. I think God has stacked things in our favor. But he says, but there's one tree because I ultimately love you. There's choice. And that one tree. But don't eat from it. I'm giving you the gift of saying no. And if you've ever met somebody in your life that has lost the ability to say no to something, you will know just what a gift that is. To be able to say, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to entertain that. I'm going to say no. God is not a killjoy, but he wants us to experience ultimate joy. And for us to experience a soul that is satisfied, we have to be able and willing to say no. And the challenge is the self-imposed no. The challenge is saying, I have all the money, I have all the power, I have all the opportunity, but I say, nope. Nope. Not going there. Nope. Not going to think that. No, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go there. No, I, I'm just going to say no, because God, you've gifted me to be able to say no for the sake of our soul. See, it's unlike my kids. My kids like to push every boundary, like to test every limit. But they're kids. And I'm their dad. And whether you believe it or not, I have matured. (laughs) And as I've matured, I see the value and the gift of the word no. My kids, as they mature, my prayer is they'll see the gift of the word no. That it will become self-imposed rather than parent-imposed. So God loves us enough for us to choose and we have the opportunity to say no. And sometimes we need to say no to some good stuff in order to say yes to the really best stuff. And my, my fourth point, and the point I want to finish with is, is I, think, I think it's one of the biggest challenging, well, one of the challenges facing the 21st century church that we see in Genesis 2. Remember, we're looking at the soil that the soul can flourish in. The environment in which we can actually establish that God has gifted us, but we can actually choose to establish that in our own lives that will allow our souls to find lasting satisfaction in a world of thirst. We get to say yes. We get to work. We get to say no. And finally, we get to be in community. That God has gifted us each other. See, in Genesis 1, we see that God creates everything. He creates everything and he creates it good. And he says, this, and he created this, and at the end, he saw that it was good. And it builds to a climax. And he says, I think it's by verse 31 or something. He says, God made it and he saw that it was very good. It's like, this is great stuff. But then we get to Genesis 2 and we get the first not good. And he looks at human. He looks at Adam and he says, uh, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. See, God has made, made Adam from the dust of the ground and he's breathed into him. And he's become a living soul. It's not so much that the human being has a soul, but the human being is a soul. But he says, You're perfect, but you're not healthy. You've got a load of pets, but you've got no companion. So I'm going to make one that, that, that fits for you, a helper. It means ultimately we can only find health for our souls when we commit to community. It's how God designed us. 
He designed us to be in community, whether you are an introvert or an extrovert. God created you for community. Your soul flourishes when we say yes to community. The very fact that God saw Adam needed another, it shows us that Adam in and of himself was not enough. He was inadequate. He could not do it alone. But the challenge, I believe, of the church is to actually invest in community and invest in companionship. Because so often community is about what I can get from it. What, what am I getting from church? Just like, just like a load of people that I wouldn't ever normally meet with. Everyone's, I mean, this is just, everyone's a little bit weird. Don't really get much from it. We do not gather simply for the sake of ourselves. If that's how you feel ever in church, can I encourage you to start serving? Start taking up that God-given responsibility to work and say, do you know what? I'm going to get alongside someone who's struggling. I'm just going to serve them. I'm just going to look for an opportunity to feed them physically. Yeah, great. Spiritually, absolutely. I'm just going to journey alongside someone. Because actually I've got an opportunity here and God is gifted. And he says that in, in creation, he says, it's not good that I'm alone. We've been created for community. And so I'm going to say no to some stuff so I can say yes to that community. Can I just honor you as a church? The very fact that you're here, you've made a decision to say yes to community. That there's so many myriad of choices that we get. But we say, do you know what? I'm going to commit. I'm going to say yes. to, And that's not just about a Sunday morning. Sunday morning is great and it is vital to the life of our church and it's part of who we are. But we also say yes during the week and we're like, do you know what? I'm going to say no to that so I can say yes to this. So we can be with others and I can invest in others. Not just about what I can get, but about how I can give. So in Genesis, we see God creates Adam and he creates Eve. And it's the origin of what we, we see as the institution of marriage. That we see one man and one woman uniting and, and it's what has become marriage in our culture. But I, I think it can get confusing because the original language, we, we see that God created a helper for him. And so we go, oh, you're there to serve. That's what it's about. Helper. I mean, that's what it's there for. But actually, the, the original language, it talks about to help as a counterpart, to stand opposite. See, this is not about a server. This is about a co-worker. This is about partnership. The root of the Adam and Eve relationship is about friendship. Our souls were created for friendship. We need that for the flourishing of our soul. Are you investing in friendships? Oh, I've got no friends. Well, can I challenge you? Are you being a good friend? Are you, are you seeking people out? Say, come on, let's, let's not talk about getting a day in the diary. Let's go and do it. I mean, Sundays are great, but they're not a point where we can deepen friendships. They're where we come together and we celebrate all that God's doing and we rejoice in who he is and, and tell stories of what God's doing. But then we journey alongside each other. We say, come on, let's keep going. You're like, come on, I'm, I'm going to be your help. I'm going to be your counterpart. We're going to journey together for a while on this. Church, it's by our love for one another that the world will know who we follow. By our love for one another. My challenge has been when the pace of life gets too much, when the volume of life gets too much, when the emotions of life get too much. I want to back away from community because I just need some downtime. And that's good. But actually, I want to suggest that community can help flourish your soul if you invest in it and you serve alongside others. Because sometimes in community, we've got some that are crawling and they need others to crawl with them. And we've got some that are running and they need others to run with them. And together as a community, we get stronger and our soul starts to flourish. 
And I suggest there's no better way than sitting and serving alongside each other to deepen and strengthen community. It's not about your boxes being ticked. It's about saying, God, I'm, I'm going to serve these people. Because they're journeying with you and I'm journeying with you. And they can teach me and I can teach them. Let's walk together with this journey and let's invest in community. See, the Adam and Eve uh, relationship, it was about marriage. Let me just talk to those of you that are married in the room today. Are you investing in that relationship? That ultimate friendship? Are you, are you, are you, are you pursuing that? Are you saying, let's, let's make a yes to that? Let's say no to some stuff so I can say yes to that relationship? Making that relationship strong? To those of you that are single in the room, are you committing to friendship? To say, do you know what? I'm going to invest in friends It's a picture of God's love that we say, I'm not going to walk away because it's not ticking the boxes because God doesn't do that. Because very rarely do I tick the boxes that God requires. Be perfect as I'm perfect. I can't do that. No, that's why you need a saviour. One that will come and walk alongside you. They'll pay the price that you could never pay. And when we commit to each other, we're a picture of that relationship of Christ and for us and what he has done for us that I'm not going to walk away. We're going to walk together because we are community and God has created us to be in community. That's where I want to land this series. We get to say yes to some stuff. We get to work. We get to say no to some stuff. And we get to be in community. And can you just come and play for us? But all that being said, can I just be honest? That would suggest that I've not been honest up to now, but I have been honest. But can I be even more honest right now? All of that is great. But if we haven't got a relationship with Jesus, it doesn't matter how you do your life. It does not matter what you put in your life. It will never be enough. It doesn't matter whether we seek to make the best environment. It doesn't matter if we legislate all the right laws that we as Christians would agree with and that are run by Scripture. Can I even dare to say, it doesn't matter if we get Brexit right. It doesn't matter if we haven't got a relationship with Jesus that our soul longs for, that we need. And that is the clue of a community that works, is that we gather around Jesus. That we put Jesus at the centre of this community. And that, as your pastor, is what I fight for. I will fight for Jesus being at the centre of this community until my last breath. Because when we gather around Jesus, notice what happens. If Jesus is in the centre of this room and we're all gathered around him, we slowly walk towards him at whatever pace he's doing, however we crawl there, we, we, we run there, whatever our journey is. But by journeying towards Jesus, we start to journey towards each other. With Jesus at the very centre. Because Jesus is the way. That there is no other way to the Father. There's no other way for your soul to be satisfied than through Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. And this is why society can never compete with the church. Because we gather around our own truth. But my truth disagrees with your truth. And so we can't gather. But we say, do you know what? My truth, I'm seeking his truth because he is truth. So we'll gather around the way, the truth and the life. Because he gives life and life in all its fullness. Not some cheap imitation, but life in all its fullness. See, when we're in Jesus, we have the Spirit of God prompting us 
to what is good and what we can say yes to. When we're in Jesus, we have forgiveness. When we say yes and we should have said no. In Jesus, we have the one who gives our work purpose, displaying his love to those around us as we all come into Jesus. And um, in Jesus, we have the very one that we get to say yes to as a community. Let's just close our eyes. We're going to finish this service just by saying yes. Saying yes to just worshipping Jesus. And making that choice to let some lyrics on a screen prompt our breath through our voice box to declare the truth of who God is. And in doing that, our hearts start to shift and our eyes start to lift. And as we do that, I want to give you an opportunity, just as we sing, to let this be a moment where maybe you need to say yes to Jesus. Maybe you've never said that big yes, and you'd be like, I need to say yes to Jesus. Maybe that's one huge step too far, but maybe actually saying, do you know what? I'm, I'm probably going to come back next week. Maybe that's what I can do. Because do you know what? There's something, maybe there's something in this. Maybe you go to one of the other mood of events and gatherings that we have. Just look on our website, look on our calendar and you can connect with us. You can speak to one of us at the end. Maybe that's just like a step that you can take to say, do you know what? I'm going to say yes to community. Maybe it's in this moment right now as we worship. Just saying, God, if you're really real. I open my soul up to you right now. I open my life up to you. And I'm going to worship you. If you're real, make yourself known.